Well, good morning, Village Church. Good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. This morning, I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 29? We're going to be in verse 31. That's where we will start. Uh, Before we get there, let's fill in a blank together. If only I had blank, everything would be better. If only I had blank, everything would be better. So maybe on the side of your notes throughout this message, start filling in what would you put in the blank. For some of you, uh, I think probably most of you, you have the belief that if I had more money, um, everything would be better. Don't say amen to that. That's an incriminating amen because probably it's a false statement. Um, enough said on that. For some of you, it's a material object. Um, many, many of you in this room, it probably could be a relationship, um, a promotion. Some of you, it's an addiction. If I only had blank, everything would be better. So this morning I was, I was pondering on the blank in my own life and stories started going through my head from childhood. Um, 1991, I was listening to the radio and do you remember the song by Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do It For You? You remember that song, right? 11 years old, I heard the song and I'm like, I must hear this song over and over and over again. But it was back in the day when, when like, you couldn't go look it up online. There was no online that I was aware of. So in order to figure out who sang it, you had to go to some record store. And uh, not even CDs at this time. It was just cassettes. And you had to go to the guy behind the desk and say, I'm looking for the song. It's like, everything I do. You know that song. You know, you got to sing it. And then they, like, take you over to a bunch of cassettes. And they're like, oh, that's Brian Adams. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know what album it's on. Oh, Waking Up the Neighbors, 1991. I'm like, yes. And so I got that for Christmas, and I opened it up, and I thought, my life is complete. I can listen to this song over and over and over and over again. I remember my first stereo. I saved up for it. I had, it was like three-foot-tall speakers. It had a record player, cassettes, dual cassettes. It had a five-disc CD player. I was the coolest kid that you've ever seen in the world. The thing could shake our house. I thought, when I had this, everything would be perfect. Every girl would love me. They didn't. Uh, 1988, I watched La Bamba, the edited version on TV. Incredible movie, edited version. Uh, And then I didn't realize there was an unedited until like 2000, right? But I watched that, I think it was 56 times that summer, recorded it on a VHS cassette. I became obsessed with Richie Valens and his story, told my mom, I will play guitar. She said, when you turn 13, if you still want to play guitar, you can do it. For five years, I obsessed, I obsessed. Finally, Christmas Day, I open up this present, and I finally am able to find my first acoustic guitar. If I only had this, everything would be better. Uh, I remember my first electric guitar. I saw it on the wall at Git Fiddler's. It was a purple Ibanez. I saw it, and my heart fell in love with it. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. We put it on layaway, and over six months, every week at guitar lessons, I'd put $10 down, $5 down, a buck twenty-six down. Six months later, I bring it home. I still have the electric guitar. I just can't bring myself to get rid of it. I remember wanting to date Brianne. I, I did look at her. I believe I was sort of joking. The story is getting all discombobulated over the last 20 years now, but I looked at her and said, I'm everything you want in a man. Why don't you just date me? And she took like five months to be able to like commit to the relationship. If I only had Brianne, everything would be better. Grad school. If I would only just be done with grad school, life would be better. Got any blanks? 
Don't say them out loud. That would probably be embarrassing. If I only had blank, my life would be better. So now here's, here's the question. In the wait, who do you become? Let me tell you who I become. I become impatient and impulsive. When, it, when I'm living in the wait between now and the thing that I am so confident that if I just had this thing, all of life would be better, it would be good, I become very impatient and impulsive. I want to share an illustration about this from a child's perspective. Um, yesterday, my son, six years old, he came up to me and said, Dad, can we play baseball today? And of course, every dad, the answer should be yes, after. Now, it has been raining, and every day my son asks me, can we play baseball today? He seems to ask me at the height of rain, or it's like 8 o'clock at night, and it's time to go to bed. Can we go play baseball? I'm like, no. It's always the wrong time, but we play baseball all the time. But, so I sit down with him, and I say, we can play baseball, but I'd already made promises yesterday to other kids. I had things that needed to get done. Um, do you remember yesterday in the rain, how many of you were trying to figure out, do I mow my lawn? Do I not mow my lawn? Right? Yes, right? Uh, it's, it's, so I'm, I'm trying to time out my day with all the other commitments I made. And so I I said to him, listen, man, um, after I do a handful of things, we can play baseball. What I like to do is write them on a to-do note that my kids can check off so they can have a timeline. So here's the the note I made yesterday. After we watch a movie, because I promised one of my kids that we'd all watch a movie together. I promised my other daughter we would go on a a bike ride together. Uh, I told X, you got to clean your room before we go do that. You started it, but you didn't finish it. Got to do it. Uh, I got to mow the lawn. Like, this is necessary. And I got to take a bunch of trash to the dumpster because everything stinks, and I don't want it to stink anymore. By the way, we have a pool. It's like the one day to do it. I got to get the tarp off, and then all the water off the tarp, and then I got to start filling it up. After all of these things, then we can play baseball. Let me just tell you, the kid's six years old. This was the worst day of his entire life, I think. <laughs> Every like half hour, 45 minutes, he's like, are you done yet? Are you, are you done yet? Are you? I come out and he's like, do you have to weed whack? And I'm like, dude, just relax. We're going to get there. And I was watching him and I'm like, oh my goodness, he's every one of us. He's just the kid version And we all do the same thing, like the wait between what we want or what we were promised, right? The longer that wait gets, the more impatient and the more impulsive we get. It's incredibly exhausting. And don't worry, we played a lot of baseball. It all worked out just fine. And he got everything his heart desired. And then, of course, it wasn't enough. Go figure how that goes. We're in a series now on the life of of Jacob. And again, we're in Genesis 29, 31. We'll be between that and Genesis uh, 30 this morning. And God made a promise to Jacob's grandfather. Pop quiz, who's Jacob's grandfather? Abraham, good job. We only had one person in the 9 a.m. You were the more spiritual, godly, and knowledgeable than them. Congrats to you. Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham. In fact, God brought Abraham outside. It was a starry night. It was a beautiful night. It was before the glow of the city covered all the stars out in the suburbs. You know that experience. And so he takes him out, and he says, look at all the stars. Count them if you can. So will your descendants be. Fast forward to the day of his death, and was this promise fulfilled? Not at all. In fact, he had a few kids, for sure. He had some grandkids and great-grandkids, yeah, but like the stars of the sky, and Abraham dies not seeing the fulfillment of this promise. Until you get to Genesis chapter 29, 
Now you start to see the progeny of Abraham are going to start multiplying. And after this, they're going to multiply exponentially. What's going to happen is Jacob, in chapters 29 to 30, is going to have 12 kids. And these 12 kids are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And what God is doing is he's birthing a nation, ultimately through Jacob, that is going to become millions of people. And so here's what we find. Jacob is on the run for his life. He betrayed his brother. He betrayed his father. His brother Esau wants to kill him. He's running. He has to leave. He goes to a family town um, a couple hours north if you were driving, a couple weeks or months if you were walking like he was. And he goes up through the wilderness and he finds himself in family territory and he ends up wanting to marry Rachel. Uh, Ultimately what happens is Rachel, her dad, tricks him and he ends up marrying Leah on accident. Now, if you don't know the story, just know this. You didn't want to marry Leah. He did not want Leah as his wife. He wanted Rachel. That's who he wanted. Now, here's what happens. In a period of eight days, Jacob doesn't just have one wife, but he ends up with two wives and two concubines. Now, FYI, it's hard enough to have one spouse. Could you imagine having to take care of four different people, men, four different women? Like, this is exhausting. How do you think his family life is going? I'll give you a hint. Not very, not very good. This family is insanely dysfunctional. This is crazy. If you thought your family was bad, just wait till you see what happens. Genesis 29, 31, here's what it says. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Uh, I want to just start off, and I want to show you just three facts in this one verse They're going to really help you set the context for the rest of this story. Uh, We need to notice, number one, Leah was hated. Uh, This word actually means open hostility, open disdain. This isn't just a, a thing in Jacob's heart towards his wife where he just loathes her. He is acting this out. He is shaming her publicly. This is not a private hatred that they are experiencing together. And so first thing I need you to see is this. This is the same word that Sarah hated Hagar. If you remember the story of Abraham's wife, Sarah, you go forward to the next few chapters. Joseph's brothers hated him and they beat him and then tried to kill him and ultimately sold him into slavery. This isn't just a word that uh, speaks to an inner experience. It's something that you are visibly watching happen before you. Now let's just ask a question. Why or why might Jacob hate Leah? Let's think about it for a moment. Uh, Maybe if some woman deceived you into having sexual relations with her, and then you were culturally bound to her for the rest of your life to care for her, till death do you part because of this, do do you think that might anger you? When you begin your marriage on deception and betrayal and lying, like, do you think that maybe there's a reason Jacob is frustrated with her? Personally, I'm going to be honest. Ladies, if you ever did that to me, I'm going to be really angry, okay? Um, that is just a very frustrating thing. So I'm, it's interesting. I'm reading this, and initially, I have a little bit of empathy for Jacob. I'm like, I get, I get how frustrating this marriage might be for him. But I want you to notice number two is Jacob's total hypocrisy. This guy is the biggest hypocrite on the planet. Uh, who are you to hate somebody who did almost exactly vice for vice what you did, even worse, to your twin brother and your dad. 
The hatred feels a little bit hypocritical. Also, the hypocrisy just amps up because you, you probably didn't live in Genesis 28 and 29 like I did for the last week. So let me tell you what happened one, one chapter prior. Uh, Jacob is running for his life. He's just betrayed his twin brother and his dad. Esau, his twin brother, wants to kill him. He's in the wilderness and God meets him. God should, he should have struck him dead. But God commits to Jacob in this moment his unending permanent covenant love. Right after Jacob does this, God's response is love. Now Jacob has this done to him, and what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to be like God. Yes, you were betrayed and deceived, but God had already modeled for him how you respond to somebody who does this to you. It's interesting that we expect from God what we refuse to give to others. Isn't that interesting? We expect from God what we refuse to give to others. Now, here's a question. Did Leah deserve to be loved? What's the answer? I don't, honestly, I don't think so. Like, this is a terrible way to start off a marriage. Did God expect Jacob to love Leah? The answer is absolutely. Third, I want you to see this. The Lord saw... Here's a fact. Yahweh's empathy for Leah and any person in this story who is the least or the most disenfranchised is off off the charts. Here's what I guarantee you. I guarantee you that Leah did not feel empathy from the Lord while she is over and over and over and over again experiencing public hatred and shame from her husband. It's interesting because there's our experience and then there is the reality of how the Lord sees it, but the Lord is moving, is he not? And you see just this little glimpse that if you're God's child, the Lord is never ambivalent to your pain and to your suffering and to your prayers. Look at verse 32. Leah conceived and she bore a son. She called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now, ladies, just listen to this. This should drive you, your soul nuts when you read this. For now, my husband will love me. Like, what a sad, desperate woman. Let me double-click on this word, love. It's the Hebrew word, ahava. And the Hebrew word ahava, it's deeper than a friendship love, and it's definitely not sexual love. Ahava is a soul-knitting, soul-connecting love where two people are bound to each other emotionally and with loyalty. And so ideally, what you're going to have is in a marriage, a husband and a wife are going to have ahava with each other. But the word is bigger than just marriage. Men, there will be one or two other men in your life maybe three if you're lucky, that you will have ahava with. This soul-connecting, soul-binding love where you would die in a heartbeat without a second thought for this person. Ladies, there are going to be one, two, or if you're lucky, three women throughout the course of your life where you're going to have ahava with them. It is a beautiful experience, and it's not something you can replicate or you can just create or pray that God gives it to you. It's one of these really unique things that you are lucky to get it a couple times in your life. So let's fill in the blank for Leah. If only I had blank, everything would be better. If only I had ahava, everything 
would be better. There's a problem. You go back one, a uh, couple verses to Genesis 29, 18, and here's what it says. But Jacob, Jacob ahavad Rachel. Uh, all of Jacob's soul-knitting, soul-connecting love is going to a different person. I want to be clear. What, what does she want? She wants a soul connection with the man she is going to spend the rest of her life with. She wants a soul connection with the man that she is going to give her body to over and over and over. Is this a reasonable, God-honoring desire that this woman, Leah, would have for Ahavan? Of course, the answer is yes, this is good. We'll call this a core relational need. Uh, It's one of these things that God has put inside of us as a drive that when it is met in the relationship, we thrive off of it. So for example, in marriage, a core relational need, the way the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 5 is, husbands, love your wives. Uh, Wives, respect your husbands. That a a wife who is well-loved by her, her husband thrives spiritually, emotionally, relationally, socially in so many ways. And a husband who is truly respected by his wife thrives. God has made us to thrive on these things, their core relational needs, that when they exist in the relationship, things tend to go better. So if you have a husband who's loved or or respected and a wife who's loved, do you think their marriage is going to be happier? The answer is yes. They're, They're good things that God has wired inside of us that when we get them, we come alive and we thrives, through thrive. Leah, and I think every woman in the room is probably going to be able to understand this, Leah is the woman in an exhausting marriage who watches romance movies, romantic movies, and reads romance novels to live vicariously through them. Here's the problem. They didn't have movies and they didn't have books. The movie she's watching is her husband, Ahavain, her sister. Let's just make this even more um, emotional and sad for Leah. Do you guys remember what the name Leah means? Cow. When she was born, uh, this is sadly the state of the dysfunction of their family. When she was born, she was apparently very unattractive to the point where even her name reflects a negative side of her appearance. And she grew up her whole life realizing, knowing that she was physically unattractive. And then her sister was the complete opposite. Her sister's name, Rachel, meant ew, E-W-E, a female lamb, beautiful and precious. Even as they're growing up, even their names just designate them apart. And, and Leah is the oldest, and Leah, is, Leah must in this culture be married before the younger. This is a problem. And her whole life, men are passing her by, trying to get together with her sister. Like, this is going to stick with you your whole life. Now, finally, you're married. You probably, if you're her, you had these ambitions to be married and to be loved by a man, and you find yourself in this marriage where he <clears throat> despises you. Verse 33, she conceived again and she bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means the Lord heard. Here's, I think, one of the most probably challenging parts of this story. She is crying out to the Lord for what? Ahava, love. And does the Lord respond by giving her what she wants? Not at all. 
to the day she dies, she never gets the ahava she wants. But what the Lord does do is he keeps giving her child after child after child after child because her bigger mission in life was to build the 12 tribes. And I understand that when you're in the moment, that doesn't feel satisfying. But ultimately, the Lord has to get Rachel to a place where she understands that this is probably never going to be hers, but she has a bigger mission to accomplish. Verse 34, again, this is number three now. She conceived and bore a son and said, now this time, my husband will be attached to me. This is the result of Ahava. This is the attachment that happens between two people. Why? Because I've borne him three sons. I mean, sons in this day are like pure gold. Like, this is amazing. Sorry, ladies. But to have a daughter wasn't seen as very, I don't know, profitable. But to have a son, one, two, three sons. And, and what more could I give this man? There's literally nothing that I could do for this man. I've given him my body. I've given him progeny. I've given him sons. Levi actually means attached. So be very careful what you name your children because you can't unname them. And so she memorializes this ambition through the name that is never, ever going to be given to her. It, there, there's like this incredible marriage seminar deep down in here, okay? So like here, here's a good one. Like if you ever do a marriage uh, retreat, teach on this. Um, will children ever fix the problems in your marriage? No, right? Oh, if only I had more kids, life will be better. No, like it exasperates and makes worse whatever is already there. Verse 35. And she conceived again, number four, <clears throat> and bore a son and said, I want, I want you to notice the shift in her language now. This time I will praise the Lord. Uh, It's like finally the Lord kept giving her the opposite of what she asked for. And eventually the Lord didn't give it to her because this thing that she wanted, as soon as she got the ahava, what she didn't know about her heart is that the heart is restless and always wandering. And every time you get what you think is going to make everything better, the heart becomes discontent almost immediately. And we're going to watch that unfold in the next chapter. She bore a son, and she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. Judah means praise. Uh, Martin Luther um, wrote about Leah quite a bit about 500 years ago, and here's what he wrote. Wretched Leah, she sits sadly in her tent with her maid and spends her time spinning and weeping. For the rest of the household, and especially Rachel, despises her because she has been scorned by her husband, who prefers Rachel and is desperately in love with Rachel alone. Leah is not beautiful, not pleasing, no. She is odious and hated. There the poor girl sits. No one pays any attention to her. Rachel brags. She doesn't even look at her. I am the lady of the house, she thinks. Leah is a slave. These are truly carnal things in the saintly fathers and mothers like the things that usually happen in our houses. Chapter 30 takes a shift. We move from Leah now to Rachel. And just when you thought it couldn't get crazier, it definitely does. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. 
Like, what's Jacob going to do with that? Like, I, I have no control over this. Like, that's not my domain. So let's fill in the blank for Rachel. If only I had blank, everything would be better. What's the answer? Children. If only I had children, everything would be better. Now, here's the irony. Leah had the children, but she wanted Ahava. Rachel had the Ahava, but she didn't have the children. No one's happy. What's wrong with them? These things are never, ever, ever meant to satisfy the deepest soul longings that we have. The heart is a funny thing. The moment every single time you get the fill in the blank, the heart goes on to the next thing. There is only one fill in the blank where the heart stops and rests and says, now I'm okay. And that is when God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, when I have God, everything will be okay. The heart will not rest. It is designed to be restless until you fill in the blank with God. And these women are slowly coming to grips with it, but they're stubborn and they want what they want. Verse 2 says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. Of course it was. And he said, am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Verse 3, then she said, here's my servant, Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Okay, listen, Old Testament narrative doesn't tell you, it shows you. Remember this? We say this all the time. Old Testament narrative doesn't tell you, it shows you. What happens every single time a man of God sleeps with his wife's mistress? Bad things, okay? This is not productive for anyone. Now, can God work through the bad stuff? Yes. Is this the ideal? Definitely not. So automatically you're reading this and you're watching Rachel downward spiral because she's desperate, fill in the blank, desperate people do desperate things, dumb things. They both work. Verse 4. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said... God has judged me. You might read negatively into this. What this means is that God has held court. God has found me the victor, has found me innocent, and he has judged on my behalf, and now he's giving me a son because God has heard me. And she names the son Dan, which means vindicated. So now every time little Daniel runs around, right? Daniel, Daniel, she probably says it extra loud, like, ha, vindicated. The Lord is on my side, Leah. He loves me and I have the children. And I imagine Leah says, yeah, but they're not from your body. So does it really count? I mean, you can, you can see the triteness back and forth here. Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means my struggle. And the idea is that I struggled and I conquered. So now every time little Naphtali runs around, she calls his name extra loud so Leah hears. Not only has God taken my side, but I won. I've got the kids, and, by the way, I've got the Ahava. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now Leah's getting desperate. She wants to compete. She wants to win. So now she does dumb things. Verse 10, then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name good fortune. Gad. 
Her servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. Who cares, Leah, what they think? You're just competing. Like, this is so frustrating, this mom culture thing. It's so ugly. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. And I'm just going to read the rest of this, because this story gets weirder and weirder, and it just shows you the level of depravity that these women are being given over to. Listen to this. Verse 14, it's a story about mandrakes. These are uh, things that if you ate them, they believed it made you more fertile and likely to have a baby. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah said to Rachel, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Really? We're fighting over mandrakes? It gets better. Rachel said, okay, here's an idea. Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Men, don't marry more than one woman. That's all you need to know. So he lay with Leah that night. Like, you should be thinking, what a pig. Yes. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Verse 19, Leah conceived, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me? Like, she's like, I may not get ahava, but at least can I be, like, honored? Like, she's settling now for something a little less? Because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. So now every time Zebulon runs around, she's like, am I honored yet? Am I honored yet? I mean, do you see the desperation in these women? Like, it's not becoming in any way, and yet they were just given over to this. I have a few so what's I want to share with you. Number one, we're going to get practical and then we'll move to the theological. Your correlational needs are good and honorable, but beware of your sin nature when they go unmet. Wives, you, your right to ahava, to be loved, can very quickly become an idol when it's unmet. If you are deprived of ahava from your husband, are you required to sin? Please say no. No, thank you. We got one no in the back. I appreciate that. It might have been a baby crying. I don't know. (laughs) Husbands, your right to be respected. It's a good thing, right? But it can quickly become an idol when you are deprived of it. If you are, let's just say, not only not respected, but disrespected, are you required to sin when you are disrespected? The answer, men, is no. Thank you. That's, that's what I'm talking about. I love this. Wives, your impulse to have biological children is a beautiful, God-ordained, good impulse. But if the Lord prevents it for a season, are you required to sin? No. Men, your impulse to provide is a good, God-glorifying impulse. But when there are seasons of struggle, like, do you have to sin when you're struggling to do this? And the answer is no. Like, these impulses are really good. God has wired them inside of us. And when we, when these impulses are fulfilled, life is a whole lot easier 
But listen, you talk to any married couple, nobody is perfectly loved or respected, nor has their fertility gone how they thought it would go, probably, nor has their ability to provide for their family ever gone according to plan the way they expected it. This is just a huge warning. When there are certain things unmet inside of us, we are prone to very desperate things. And desperate people almost always do dumb things. I feel like that should be the title of a book we all write together in the book of Genesis. Desperate people do dumb things. Okay. Beware, number two, withholding core relational needs in marriage and beyond. Uh, We have the ability to exasperate people in our lives. The people you work with, your children, your spouse. When core desires are not met, our worst selves are exposed. So here's here's my challenge. Some of you have the power to actually provide somebody with core relational needs in a way that you have already promised implicitly or explicitly to do it. Let me give you a couple examples. In marriage, uh, women who are unloved, they do desperate things. Men, do not withhold ahava from your spouse. Respect. Men who are disrespected do desperate things. Wives, respect your husbands intentionally. To withhold it is to leave them vulnerable in the same way to leave you unloved is to leave you vulnerable. Sexuality. 1 Corinthians 7 5 says that spouses who are left sexually wanting are easy prey for Satan. Let's talk about parenting. You have an implicit command on your life to disciple your children. Undiscipled children do dumb things. Heck, discipled children do dumb things. How much more? Disciplined children. Let me just tell you about this. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And let me tell you, I found a common denominator amongst every single kid that loved and respected their dad. You want to tell you what it is? Their dad disciplined them. Let me tell you about the kids whose dads didn't discipline them, let them do whatever they wanted. They grew up to hate their fathers. Isn't that interesting? You leave a kid undisciplined, they will do dumb things and they will hate you when it's all said and done. Time, affection. These are things as a parent you give and to withhold these core relational needs leaves your children vulnerable. At work, let's talk about that. To your boss, to those over you, you give honor. To those under you, you give dignity. And to those who are alongside of you, you give respect. You can make your work life so incredibly difficult by compromising any one of these, can you not? And so these, these are implicit things on us that we can make people's lives so much easier. Many an employee has made their other employee's life unnecessarily difficult through a lack of honor, dignity, or respect. Let's get a little bit more theological here. God's big script is never thwarted by the whirlwinds that we sow. I had the opportunity to preach in Carroll's stream at Village Church East last week, and we talked about sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. It's a biblical concept. If you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And so many of you are living in the whirlwind, and the reality is that the whirlwind is the accumulation of decisions that you have made over the course of your life. 
You've sowed the wind time and time again, not expecting that the whirlwind is finally here. What I love about this story is you, you just step back. Let's actually just look at a, the names of all of the kids that have come from this family. Leah had six children. Leah's concubine had two. Rachel's concubine had two. Ultimately, Rachel had two. Every one of these kids came out of a crazy, broken, dysfunctional circumstance, did they not? And these were going to be the 12 kids who were going to be the foundation of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, the people of God, the nation of God that God would build to develop a culture, ultimately to bring the Messiah to change the whole world. This is how it started. And I want to just be super clear with you. This was going to happen no matter what. But the crazy around all of this, I don't believe was necessary for one moment. This was the result of Jacob sowing the wind year after year after year after year, and he's sowing now, uh, reaping now the whirlwind. I, I really believe that if Jacob would have honored God from the beginning, he probably would have had one wife, Rachel, and they would have had 12 boys that would have been the 12 tribes. So like God's going to do what God is going to do. And I'm sorry, but no matter how ridiculously foolish we are, there is no amount of foolishness that is going to thwart the large agenda of God. But our experience from here on the way to that can be miserable or delightful in the Lord, can it not? And so many of us are living in the whirlwind. Why? Because we sowed the wind week after week, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And I just want to, I look at this and I think this, all of this, it's just not, it's just not necessary. I think about decisions that many of you today, you're going to go home and you're going to make decisions where to eat, whatever, et cetera. But think about the next month, six months, year. You're going to have huge decisions to make. And you're either going to sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, or you're going to sow righteousness and reap it. But your future, your future experiences largely are contingent on your ability to be self-controlled, disciplined, and honor the Lord now. And so I don't know what's in front of you. I don't know what the next 10 or 20 years of your life look like. But here's what I do know. Sow the wind now and wait long enough and you're going to reap the whirlwind. The stories are written as a mirror to say to us, you don't need to do this. But even as you do this, be reminded, you will never thwart what God is doing, big picture. The script of God will be accomplished, period, at the end of the day, through your life, through this church, through whatever, through the world, God is going to get things done one way or another. And I love, even as I, as I look at the insanity of our world and so many people and relationships, God is never thwarted, never is he like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. What will he ever do? I guess all my plans are thrown out in the air. Like the Lord is good and sovereign and you need to be reminded because from this day forward, you will watch one decision after another from friend and family and persons that you don't even know. You're gonna watch the whirlwind all around you and you're gonna wonder what is God doing? God is allowing people to reap what they sow, but God is never, ever, ever slowing down his agenda. He is getting everything done that he wants to get done in his time frame. That's why we serve a sovereign God who is above the whirlwinds that we're all watching happen all around us. Now, what we do at Village Church is most weeks we come to the communion table and we celebrate. And I want to remind all of you of some really, really bad news and some really good news. I don't know if you've seen it in the story But if you were to place yourself in this story, you are Leah. You are Rachel. You are the person that fills in the blank with something other than God. 
you are Jacob. You are the person who lied and deceived and manipulated and sowed the wind, and now the wind is becoming a whirlwind. Like, there's this very judgy part of me when I read these stories. Like, these people, how could they? But at the same time, I realize I have filled in the blank with so many ridiculous things that have left my heart wanting and wondering when I knew probably at the end of the day the only, the only thing that could ever satisfy my deepest soul desire was God himself through faith in Jesus. It's also interesting is even after I became a Christian, I still find my heart wandering and trying to fill in the blanks with other things, right? It's unbelievable. And these are the moments when I am so genuinely grateful that I have a God who has chosen to be faithful to me despite me. Like in my brain, God should have abandoned Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, but he didn't. Because we serve a God who makes promises in the Bible. They're called covenants. And he keeps his word and his promise and his covenant every single time. What I love is that we have a God who has offered us salvation through faith in Jesus. These elements are reminders of what Jesus did for us. His body was killed for us. His blood was shed for us. They're a reminder of what God has done for every one of us in this room. And he has made promises to anybody, everyone who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. 100% of your sins will be forgiven. Absolutely, you will receive the Holy Spirit. He will form you into the image of Christ. There will never be anything that you will ever do that will make his love for you stop, period. If there was, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, Rachel, and the whole lot of them probably would have done it and lost it by then. And yet God is faithful. I come to this communion table not as a good person. I come to this table as Leah. I come to this table as Rachel. I come to this table as Jacob. I come to this table as Esau, realizing that what I need is forgiveness and that God has promised me this forgiveness only through faith in Christ. So you might be here today. I don't know who you are. I know every week there are visitors and there are people um, who just come here and maybe you got dragged here and you have never trusted in Christ. Deep down inside, I have one thing, beautiful thing to offer you. Your heart will wander until you fill in the blank with faith in Christ. Your heart will wander and wander and wander. And every time you get the next thing, your heart will begin to wander again. And I offer you Jesus, the one whom your heart truly does long for, whether you realize it. Your heart was designed in a way that when God actually fills in the blank, your heart settles and rests for the first time. I offer you Jesus who loved you so much that he paid the price for your sins that you never could. I offer you Jesus who was raised from the dead as a validation that God accepted the payment for your sins on your behalf for anyone who would trust in Christ. So I don't know why you're here or what brought you here, but um, I do want to offer you the greatest gift that your heart could ever, ever have and that is God himself through faith in Christ. We're going to celebrate communion in a little while. These elements are going to be passed by, and and you may not know what to do with them. And if you have never trusted in Christ before, and you're not ready to trust in Christ now, these elements are going to pass. And here's my ask of you. When they pass by you, would you not partake of them? I want to tell you why. Nobody will notice or look down on you, but here's why. To partake in these is to make a declaration that you believe in Jesus crucified and risen. To to partake of these is to proclaim non-verbally that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins on your behalf and you believe this. 
To take these elements and to partake of them is to make a declaration that you believe salvation is not for good people, but it's for people like Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and that you are just like them. And so if you're, gonna, if you're here and, and you've not, you're not ready to trust in Christ yet, we just ask that you don't partake. But some of you, you might be here and you believe. And maybe even today, like you've never believed, but you want to believe and trust in Christ. You want to ask him to forgive you of your sins. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. And these elements come by you. I want you to take them and I want you to partake with us when we partake as a symbol that you have personally, are personally trusting in Jesus, maybe even for the first time. Let your partaking be a declaration. Some of you are visiting from other churches and you are a Christian. I want to invite you. Would you partake of communion with us together? I don't care where you go to church. If you believe in Jesus, we're one family. And that far, as far outweighs wherever you might go to church on a normal Sunday morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have it's just a time of silence. It's an opportunity for you to talk to God. Uh, when we're done, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song together. And then the elements are going to be passed out. Would you hold on to the elements until the end? and we'll partake together. Let's have a time of silence.